Well, good morning. Uh, I'm Bill Bider. I'm one of the elders, and I am going to be teaching today in Psalm 51, which is the second of uh, a series of five psalms that we'll be teaching through. Each elder will be taking one of these psalms. Last week, Mark Ettinger, if you were here, opened us up with a great message on Psalm 103. And you'll be hearing from the other three elders in the uh, next three weeks. Well, Psalm 51 is going to be my uh, area of teaching this morning. And um, we live in a time when people really hesitate to confront one another regarding sin. Most of us want to maintain peace in our relationships. We uh, don't want to impact that. We don't want added stress. We don't want to offend others. And most of us who are Christians remember the teaching of Jesus that says, take the log out of your own eye before you try to take the speck out of someone else's eye. And sometimes we let that get in the way of going to a brother and sister in Christ who is in sin. The scripture does clearly warn us not to judge unfairly, unrighteously, or hypocritically But we are called by Jesus and by the apostles to use good, biblically-based discernment to make right judgments. And sometimes that means doing the hard thing of going to a brother or sister in Christ to point out sins. In fact, Matthew 20, I mean, Matthew 18 tells us about how to carry out that kind of Christian discipline. But today's message is really not about Christian discipline. It is about Psalm 51, which is a psalm that David wrote in response to being confronted about his own sin. And we're going to talk a lot about that sin that led to writing the psalm. But it was impacting his ability to serve God as the anointed king of Israel. No doubt the man who confronted him, Nathan, a prophet of God, was chosen by the Lord and given special wisdom to reveal David's sin to him in a way that he would humbly receive it, which we will see he did that and did not have a harsh response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning uh, that you have given us life, that you've given us eternal life, all of us who have put our faith and trust in you. We pray, Lord, that you will convict us this morning if that is needed if there is sin in our lives where repentance is needed, you will show us that sin. You will help us to learn from David's psalm about a proper way to move forward when we have sin in our life. Lord, we uh, pray that everything that goes on here this morning, that's this teaching, that our worship time would all be done to bring glory and honor to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Well, most of you are probably familiar with the story that I alluded to about David's sin. And we'll be talking about that. Um, But I am going to be emphasizing not the whole psalm. I could walk us through every aspect. I'm getting a little bit of echo, I think, here, aren't I? Uh, I could walk through every verse of this psalm. And I could uh, say that that would be a good thing to do, and it would teach us 
better and more fully how to deal with sin that is in our lives. But I'm going to have a different focus this morning, even though we are going to talk about a lot of what is in this psalm. We're going to focus this morning on this one verse in the psalm, or at least I'm going to emphasize it. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. I'm choosing that as my point of focus because most of us struggle to maintain the joy and gratefulness that really should naturally flow from our salvation. But before I dig deeper into this plea, we do need to look at the story and we need to look at what it means to have a penitent heart because David's response to the identification of sin in his life illustrates that that is what occurred in him. So what is a person with a penitent heart? It's a person who exhibits true repentance. It's not simply someone who is sorry that they were caught or is seeking relief from the consequences of the sin. It is someone who is deeply sorrowful and stricken in conscience, humble in spirit, a broken and contrite heart. The person knows their sin has left a stain on them. There's a filth or a foul odor to God, and that is impacting relationships with both God and other people. So uh, that is what we are going to try to uh, understand better this morning. We don't really use that word penitent very often today, but that is what we're talking about here. Now, despite... Um, the fact that David was called a man after God's own heart, we see that he had periods of sin in his life, and the ones we're going to talk about this morning is just one of those periods. But every one of us is just like that. No matter how mature we are in our uh, Christian walk, we are still going to sin. Paul emphasized that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God in Romans chapter 3. David was no exception to that, and we are no exception to that. No matter how mature we are, sin will not leave us. We would like to consider ourselves as men and women after God's own heart, and we may be, but we have to know how to deal with that sin that inevitably arises in us. So this story about David's we see sin overcame a very strong faith, at least temporarily in his life. Lust led to more and more and worse sins, even leading to death. The Apostle James gives us this teaching in the first chapter of his letter that says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire or his lusts. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is what happened in David's life. Lust grew and grew and grew, and many sins occurred over a very short period of time. So let's turn some to the story, and, and most of you, I'm sure, are familiar with this story. It can be found in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. We're not going to be reading through much of that. We're going to read a little bit of the verses that are in there, but I'm going to tell the story, even though most of you know it. I want to make sure all of you know the starting point that led to David writing this psalm. 
So following a series of victories and battles, King David decided he was going to relax, kind of kick back. He wasn't going to go out with his men to fight the next battle because that's where they went. But he hung out at the palace. So what did he do? Probably either in a state of boredom or maybe feeling a little bit guilty about not being out with his men, he wandered out onto the palace roof and he saw beautiful Bathsheba bathing and had lustful thoughts. They filled his head. She was the wife of Uriah the Hittite who was out fighting and um, I had to do a little research to find out who the Hittites really were. And uh, what I found is that the Hittites were people who were living among Israel who were believed to be descended from Canaan, the great-grandson of Noah. So they were not uh, descendants from Abraham, they were not part of Israel, but they were living among them they were not fighting with them. Well, David's lust for Bathsheba was sin in itself, and it led him to break the 10th commandment. Don't covet your neighbor's wife. He did covet. David, being a powerful king that he was, was able to just order his men to bring Bathsheba to him. She laid with him, and she conceived, although at the time he may not have known whether she conceived or not but he wasn't going to take any chances. He wanted this act of adultery, breaking the seventh commandment. See, these sins are going to keep growing, as we just saw on that previous slide. Lust leads to bigger and bigger sins. He knew he had done wrong, but repentance was really far from his mind. He only wanted to be free from the consequences of his sin. Like we said, that is not what a penitent heart is, to be free. So he had Uriah, he had a plan. He brought Uriah back to Jerusalem from the battlefield and gave him permission to be with his wife and hopefully they would have sexual relations. And then if she was pregnant with a child from David's encounter, it could not be tied to David. So now we can add lying and scheming to his sins as well because he undoubtedly was telling Uriah, that to go with Bathsheba for the, a reason that was not true. And uh, Uriah did not believe it was appropriate for him to lay with his wife, enjoy that time of refreshing while his men were out fighting. He refused to do so while they were risking their lives. So, he so David, given that circumstance, decided I better come up with an alternative plan, and he devised the plan that was even more evil. He ordered Uriah back into battle, and he gave his general, Joab, instructions to put Uriah in the front lines. And what happened there? He also told him um, to tell the men when the fighting became fierce for the men to pull back, and when that happened, Uriah died, which was really his plan. So now we can add murder to the list of sins because he was murdered as a result of David's instructions to Joab. He broke the sixth commandment. Somehow David had the idea that he could cover up his sexual immorality by these actions that he was taken, but he was blind to the fact that many people knew what he had actually done. And word has a tendency to get out. It's a common trick of Satan to uh, deceive us into thinking 
that we can conceal our sins, but more often than not, uh, someone knows about those sins and the word will get out. And regardless of whether we can keep the sin from other people, God knows that we have sinned. Again, let's remind ourselves, David is a man who has been identified as a man after God's own heart. We can be sure that those same weaknesses in David are present in us. They may not translate into serious sins that we're talking about here, but sin, nevertheless, will come in us. Paul expressed that very clearly in Romans chapter 7 when he said, I do the things that I don't want to do. And Jesus taught our spirits may be willing, but our flesh is weak. This is a list of the progression of David's sins becoming more and more serious as time went on. And he seemed blind to his sins at that time. It's interesting too that David's son Solomon wrote about things that God hates. And David did at least three of these things this is in Proverbs chapter 6 that Solomon recorded that. David was guilty of at least three of them, and they are a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devised wicked plans. So uh, although God loved David, his sins that he carried out, he hated. He didn't I mean, that is the word that is used. God hates these things, and David did those things that God hates. Let's get back to the story. After a time of grieving with her husband, um, for her husband who had been killed, David sent for Bathsheba, and she became his wife, and soon after she gave birth to the son of David. But we read in 2 Samuel Chapter 11, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He hated it. It displeased him. Soon after the birth of the child, the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to confront David about his sin. And he told this story, which I will read. Um, this is from Second uh, Samuel chapter 12. You're probably familiar with this story. There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. David's initial response or reaction to Nathan's story was harsh. But it, he indicated by that response that he st still seemed blinded to his own sins against Bathsheba, Uriah, and the Lord. He became angry and said, this man deserves to die. The, the man who took that ewe lamb. That's when Nathan courageously said, you are the man. And he didn't stop there. He explained more about God's displeasure with David's actions. 
He said he would face consequences. Just because God forgives our sins doesn't mean the consequences still come true for us. Nathan said never-ending violence would be within his household. And he said the child born to Bathsheba would die. Well, David didn't uh, make excuses. When this was said by Nathan to him, this was David's response. I have sinned against the Lord. You know, David, as I said, was a very powerful king. He could have had Nathan's head chopped off in a minute as a result of him confronting him in this manner. But he didn't make excuses. He didn't try to defend himself. God cut David to the heart. You talk about conviction. His eyes were open to his condition. He simply said, I have sinned against the Lord. Not against Uriah, not against Bathsheba. His sin, whenever we sin, is against the Lord. Even if we are also harming another person, it is always against the Lord. So what followed after this encounter with Nathan? Soon the child became sick. David fasted and wept, hoping God would relent and change his promise and show mercy, but the Lord kept his word and the child died. We don't know how much time passed then from the end of this story before he wrote Psalm 51, but the condition of his heart is clear when he wrote it. He had changed tremendously. A penitent heart was obvious at the time he wrote it. And here's the first four verses of this psalm to that illustrate the condition of his heart. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know the transgress, my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. We see a true sorrowful repentance in David's words. We see a true humble and broken spirit in his words. Now, I said earlier, my emphasis is going to be Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. But before we turn to that plea, which is verse 12, I want to look at two other verses that immediately precede that in this psalm. David said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. David wanted his joy restored, absolutely he did. And he remembered that it was a wonderful blessing of joy that he felt as a young man or even just maybe months or years earlier in his life when he fully trusted in the Lord. He remembers the joy he felt even in difficult times when trials entered his life. For example, when he confronted Goliath Deep down in him, there was still a joy that was present. 
He remembered the joy he felt when he danced nearly naked before the Lord as he led the Ark of the Covenant as it came back into Jerusalem. That joy that he remembered was gone. He knew his sin had stolen it. That joy that once flowed from his relationship from the Lord had been stolen. But David understood that before his joy could be restored, God had to create in him a clean heart. And what does this mean? He knew his heart was corrupted and it needed cleansing that only God could give, that sin had corrupted it in a way that God had to act to do something to clean it, to cleanse it. And in his humble, broken state, he appealed to God's mercy and grace to allow him to remain in his presence under the ongoing influence of the Holy Spirit. He remembered how he had seen King Saul, who had once been led by the Holy Spirit, turn to evil ways, and he didn't want that to happen to himself. He knew that without the Spirit filling that void, that cleaned out void in his heart, he'd be in danger of slipping right back into sin, and he would lack wisdom and peace and joy. We know from other writings of David in the Psalms that he knew the Lord was his salvation. Psalm 118, for example, states that. Psalm 13 says that his heart rejoiced in that salvation. So David understood something that Jesus actually taught a thousand years later about where our joy should come from. This is what Jesus said. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In other words, we should rejoice in our salvation. Jesus wanted us to experience a joy that results from the, believing the promises that come after we are saved, for those of us who are saved. Jesus wanted us to have an eternal perspective and really, salvation has that eternal perspective. It lasts forever, and it begins on the very day that we believe in him as our Lord and Savior. When we are saved, we are justified, we are saved from the consequences of our sin forever. The prophet Isaiah said it very clearly. He said, I will rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. Can't be much clearer, Isaiah is saying. His rejoicing relates very much back to his salvation. At this point, I'm going to, well, first let me say one other thing. We can experience joy, a degree of temporal joy, in other worldly blessings that God gives us. Things like our kids, our spouse, our friends, a beautiful sunset, good fellowship time with one another. We can rejoice in these things. But our greatest joy relates to our salvation and those promises that we have in the, in the word. So uh, I'm going to take a little slight diversion to look at this link between belief, salvation, and joy. When we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit indwells us 
At that very instant, we are saved. Salvation is ours, and it's forever. From that point on, we are identified as in Christ. When God looks at us, he sees Christ. That then gives us, that indwelling spirit gives us the ability to bear fruit, as Paul teaches in Galatians chapter 5. One of those fruits is joy. That is joy that is directly linked to our salvation. The only way we can experience that joy is if we are saved. Now, we may also, you may also ask the question, is what is it that we're really taking joy in when we're saved? What is, uh, why, what is it, really? Let's define it. Why, why are we having joy? Well, part of it, first of all, when we have the Holy Spirit in us, we finally can understand God's word, its true meaning. Without it, his word is foolishness to us. So we now have the ability to read it and understand it. His promises in his word become more real to us and we see them as our own. One of those promises is we know our names are written in the Lamb's book of life that guarantees us an eternal inheritance to live with the Lord forever in, in that heavenly house that he's up there preparing for us right now. And we find in God's word too that nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand. That's this eternal aspect of our salvation, the assurance of the believer. And we believe that there are other promises, just a couple more, that, that give us joy. Jesus promised us that he will never leave us nor forsake us, and we're told that nothing can separate us from his love. We have no fear in hell, we have no fear in the lake of fire. They're not for us. And you know, that we can take joy in that. That is, a, if we were not sure of that, we would not be able to have this joy because it would always be hanging over us as maybe that's for us. But it's not. It's not for us. And that alone can make us have joy. If you were in Sunday school today, you heard Larry talking about rejoicing in our sufferings. And I'd like to just... I wasn't thinking of adding this in here, but I just want to say the only reason that we can have joy in our sufferings is because of this joy that comes from our salvation. All these promises, when we look forward and when we have an eternal perspective, this temporal suffering that we're having or this persecution because we're a follower of Christ, we can not overlook it. It doesn't mean we enjoy it. You know, that's a big difference. We're not enjoying the suffering, but we can take joy in it knowing that our future doesn't have any risk of hell or the lake of fire or condemnation. Because of salvation, we can rejoice in any circumstance that comes our way. But now I want to say is, well, why am I lacking joy? Here we had a Dave, David, a man after God's own heart who lacked joy. My guess is that a lot of you would say, I don't live a life of total joy. And we're going to talk just a little bit about this. 
Some of you may say, I've never experienced the joy of salvation. I've never felt like dancing before the Lord. I've never felt like raising my arms when I'm praising the Lord. I've never felt like, I never cried tears of joy listening to Christian music that was talking about what God has done for us. I've never had it. I've never felt it. You may feel some degree of gratitude for what God has done. You may even feel sorry that Jesus had to suffer and die to save you. But that's not the kind of joy that I'm talking about here. You've never felt it. Maybe some of you haven't done it openly or outwardly because you're a little self-conscious and you don't, you just don't feel like doing it in front of other people. But what about when you're alone? Have you ever listened to Christian music and at home alone or maybe in a, in a non-threatening environment where you did raise your hands? You were praising the Lord. Maybe you did cry some tears of joy. If you've never done that even alone, not necessarily in this crowd, then you better question. If you've never had any of that joy associated with your salvation, you probably need to do some serious self-evaluation as to whether you truly have trusted in Jesus because this is something that should follow salvation. Somewhere, sometime, it should have been there. David remembered it. He lost it, but he remembered it. Some of you may say, I felt that in the past, but somehow it's dwindled away. It's faded away to where that joy that I felt when I was first saved, I haven't felt it for, for 10 years, 20 years. It's, it just hasn't been there for all of that time. And some of that is... Uh, maybe related to um, whether or not you're trusting that you're still saved. You know, there's things happening in the Christian world right now where some people are walking away from their faith or they're saying they are. Um, maybe you have been led to believe that you can walk away from your faith. Maybe, that, uh, maybe you sinned so much and you know it that you wonder whether you're really saved even though there was a time in your past when you uh, believed you were and you felt some of this joy, something's just getting in the way right now. And I think what's getting in the way right now is more, less likely tied to your assurance of salvation and more likely tied to sin, unrepentant sin in your life. We talked about how that sin is in every one of us all the time. Well, um, there are things we can do, but this sin in our life, it can be chronic. It's, it's probably not the kind of sin we just talked about that David had in his life, that serious kind of sin. Most of the sin that is in our life that may be smothering or stifling or quenching this joy of our salvation is sin like worry and envy and pride and maybe anger, quick anger to every little thing around you, chronic sin. Some of it may be open, some of it may be in our thought lives only. But whenever we sin, we are grieving the Holy Spirit and we are almost certainly smothering 
this joy that comes from our salvation, this fruit of the Spirit. Well, there's probably at least some of you in this room that are saying, that doesn't describe me. You know, I may sin a little bit, but I don't sin enough to smother away my joy. I would think that uh, there's at least some of you who are better than most of us in this way. (laughs) And maybe you have more joy in your life that stems from your salvation. And if so, I would say be thankful for that blessing. Because that is truly a blessing. That the Lord is helping you refrain from having so much sin in your life that it is smothering your joy. That is a blessing. But, but even so, even if you are one of those people, um, wouldn't you like your joy enhanced just a little? Wouldn't you like it a little more consistent? It'd be a rare person to say, I'm always joyful. I'm never down. I'm always up. Again, there could be someone, but it'd be rare. So all of us really need to ask ourselves whether there is unrepentant sin in our lives that could be impacting our joy. We have Paul telling us we're going to keep sinning. Paul's saying, I can't stop sinning. I do what I don't want to do. And we have John, the Apostle John, before the verse you see up here, saying, if we say we do not sin or we are without sin, we deceive ourselves. So we got John, we got Paul, we got Jesus saying our flesh is weak. We got them all telling us we're going to sin. And then I'm telling you, if you're sinning, you're smothering your joy. So what's the answer for us? How do we try to get over this predicament that we were in? Well, it kind of starts right here with what John tells us in 1 John 9, where he says, if we confess our sins, and I would say with a repentant heart, as David did in those first verses of Psalm 51, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us. Again, back to Psalm 51, that is to wash us and cleanse us. He will do it. If we confess he's faithful, he will cleanse us from this. He will wash us from all unrighteousness. That's all of our sin. Even the real serious kinds or the little chronic ones. And that includes granting us the blessing of a clear conscience after we have been cleansed. So, confession and cleansing by God is a starting point with this. We've already talked a little bit about where we got to go. We can get cleansed, but remember what verse 10 and 11 said. He wanted to have that spirit put back in his heart to fill that void after it has been cleansed. We need the spirit in us. Both David and Jesus gave us guidelines for this. David, in the verses that I just referred to, verses 10 and 11, where David said in 11, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. He knew he needed the Holy Spirit in him 
to sustain that joy in that cleaned, cleansed, washed state. And Jesus uses a little different terminology, but it relates to the concept of abiding. He said, if you remain in me or abide and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That fruit is part of that fruit. Some of that fruit is joy joy that will come. So to maximize that joy, to sustain that joy, is by confessing in being repentant and abiding. They have to become a way of life. And if it is our way of life, does it mean we're not going to still have some valleys where the joy is not quite what it should be? Yeah, because we're going to sin. You know, we'll kind of go into the valley and we can come out of that valley with confession, repentance, and then abiding. So I, I, I would say that is the answer that we're looking for and the model that David gave us in Psalm 51. David knew that God did not take away his joy. He knew his thoughts and behaviors did. That's what caused him to lose it. In other Psalms, we knew that David had other insight into God's grace, his mercy, his compassion, and his desire for to experience this abundant joy in our relationship with him. After David was confronted by Nathan, he understood that he was nothing but a wretched, miserable soul because he still had unrepentant sin. He, wasn't, he was just getting on the right road, the right path. But he knew God would wash him and cleanse him. He knew he was faithful to do that if he humbly put himself before the Lord, he knew his joy could be restored. So Psalm 51 gives us a reliable model on how to restore our relationship with the Lord and the joy that comes from our salvation. Again, I want to emphasize that joy is overreaching every aspect of our life. That joy that comes from our salvation, that eternal perspective, that belief and acceptance of all those promises that we have in the word, that joy will cover all suffering, all persecution, all circumstances. It all begins with salvation and the Holy Spirit coming into us, allowing us to believe God's promises in his word. If we follow it regularly, if we make that a way of life, David's model in Psalm 51, then we might be able to obey the biblical command to rejoice in the Lord always. That's present in Philippians 4.4. 4. Please rise with me. We're going to read some verses to get together. And I, these are verses we have gone through today. It's Psalm 51, 1 through 4, and then it is 10 and 11. And I ask as you read these to make them personal for you. Think about it for a second. Get your heart and mind ready because when you read it, make this your prayer to God right now, today, and make it part of your life. So let's, let's start. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. 